Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, as uh, Doug said, we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're continuing here in our teaching through the Gospel. Uh, We are in chapter 2, so this is going to be our sixth week here as we kind of pick this up. But before we kind of dive into the text this morning, um, as always, I always, and I know you guys may get tired of kind of hearing some of this, but I always want to make sure we set the context of, of what we're talking about, and, uh, because as we talk about this historical event that we're reading about, it's only five verses, um, it's, it's important that we set it in the right context with what's going on, what's happened previously, uh, to make sure that we understand this whole, um, this whole thing that the Lord's really kind of doing here, Jesus is doing up here in Galilee. So what's a quick recap? So here in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, what have we, we've seen? Jesus has, um, has been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. He's been kind of doing some ministry uh, in Jerusalem a little bit, we think, around Judea mostly uh, for maybe a year before he ends up here in Galilee in Capernaum. At some point, he decides, obviously, to, um, in fact, when he is in getting baptized, we believe that some of these, uh, James and John, maybe Peter even, um, and Andrew, maybe were followers of John the Baptist, and, and now they've, they've gotten to know who Jesus is. Maybe they've even followed him some. In other words, they follow his teaching. Maybe they've even met him and, and talked to him at times. We don't know. It doesn't really say, but historically, it would mean, it would lead us to believe that that's probably what's been happening at some level. And then Jesus, about a year in, ends up in, on purpose, I shouldn't say ends up, he purposely, I believe, ends up up in Galilee, in the northern part of Israel, to a town called Capernaum, which is on the kind of the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. And we see that when he gets there, he comes across these men, uh, Andrew and Simon or Peter and James and John, and they're fishing and they have fishing, they fish with their families, they have fishing businesses. And if you remember several weeks ago, Jesus comes and he says, guys, come and follow me. And it says they dropped their nets and they followed him. And I just want to tell you, I think that's a literal thing that's happening there. I think that that's not a metaphor for anything. No, they literally said, okay, I'm going to follow this guy. And why would they do that? Because they've known him. They've listened to his teachings. They are aware of it. He's not asked. But all of a sudden, they're confronted with the Messiah. And maybe they don't completely understand that that's who he is. And he's come to them. And he says, now, guys, I want you to come and follow me. And they do. They They've been listening for maybe a year. They've known him, and and Jesus has been just preparing their hearts. God is preparing their hearts, and now they they follow. And so what do we see after that? We we see a couple things. I'm not going to probably touch on everything here in the first chapter. There's a lot that's taken place, but I think it's really important because I think today's message kind of ties in with what what God is doing here foundationally um, in Jesus' ministry and his ministry. One of the things we see is that he goes and... At that particular time, um, there were synagogues in all these small towns. And Capernaum had a synagogue. There was 10 Jewish men there, and so they could have a synagogue. And, and you could go in, you could preach in these synagogues, right? And so Jesus had the opportunity to go in and preach and teach. And, and while he's there preaching, we saw a few weeks ago, the, the crowd, the people that were there were astonished at how he handled the word, how he preached and how he taught like no one's ever taught before. And, and what we basically said was, well, yeah, because he's Jesus. Like, 
He is the Word. He is, he is there. He is God in the flesh. And so clearly, now they don't understand all that yet. At the same time, there's a demon-possessed man that shows up there, that's there in the temple. And he casts the demon out. And that really, obviously, causes a great stir. And not only with the crowd, but with the Pharisees, this man that can cast demons out of a person, right? And so then we see that people want to be healed, and he begins to heal people, and he goes out and it says he heals all these people, and we don't know how many, but there's just people being healed, and he's demonstrating his power and his authority, and he's just doing this incredible thing. And so he's, he's got quite the following now, right? And then we fast forward a little bit, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and, and she was ill, and she, not much there, but he heals her. And then we see a few weeks ago, he comes upon a leper. Actually, the leper approaches him and breaks every religious rule to approach someone. They weren't supposed to come within six feet of people. And they, he comes, and he basically says, Jesus, I know you're able to heal me, but are you willing? And Jesus says, I am willing, and he heals him. And so what do, we, what do we see there? We see, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. We said, in many ways, we are the leper. Like we are the, the leper in that culture was um, what's considered a dead person walking. I mean, it's just, they were just the, the scourge of society. They felt that they had been cursed by God because they had this disease. And, and yet Jesus touches him and loves him. And that's such an important point in that text. It says he reaches out and he touches him. That was the last thing. In fact, you could even be unclean if you touched a leper. But what we said and laughed about a little bit was when Jesus touches him, he's healed and so he's no longer a leopard. So how can anybody say we touched a leopard because he's not really a leopard anymore, right? And so we see that he has power not only over the spiritual world and demons, but he has power over the worst of the worst diseases in the culture. And he can bring life in both of those ways. And then what, last week, we see that these, these men have a, a paralytic friend, and, and as Jesus is in a home preaching, they tear open the roof and they lower him down before Jesus. Because once again, very much like the leper, they, just, they know that Jesus is able, but is he willing? And the thing that they know they need to do is just get him in front of Jesus. That's the first thing that has to happen. And so they're willing to do anything to do that. And Pastor Brian taught on that last week. But really what was last week's message about, if you listen closely, it was not about the healing. It was about that Jesus had the power to forgive sins. That's what the message was really, the focus of that message, is that what Jesus was doing there, in fact, when they lowered him down, the first thing that Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. And the, the Pharisees that were there and the scribes, they were appalled, right? Who is this man that can do this? And so Jesus says, okay, what's easier to say, uh, your sins are forgiven or you're healed, get up your bed and walk. And so he says, and he heals him. And what Jesus is doing there is he's saying, look, if, if you just want me to heal him and you want to show you that I am who I say I am, then I'll heal him. But I'm really just saying his sins are forgiven. Now, what's so important about that is that the focus many times is on the healing. And look, if you're the paralytic guy, that's pretty important to you. I get it. But the really significant thing that's taking place there is that Jesus is demonstrating that he is God and he can forgive sins. That he has the power to do that. That's, yeah, he's been healing all these people. 
the, the focus of that was to start letting people know that he not only had the power to cast out demons, he not only had the power to heal leopards, he had the power to, to do away with sin, to heal people, to forgive people of their sinful life, to remove the, the wrath, the judgment of God on them because he could die in their place. Now, he didn't, they didn't understand that that's what he was going to do yet, even though for hundreds of years, there's been a sacrificial system that's been demonstrating that a person's gonna need to come to be the person that's gonna die in their place. And so now Jesus is reminding them and showing them who he is and that he has the power to do this. And then what do we see? We see that Jesus here now in, in chapter two, verse 13 through 17, these five verses, is going to come up against another significant issue in someone's life. And so I want to, what I want you to see here is that there's three major things that, that Jesus is demonstrating in these first two chapters. One, he has power over evil things. He has power over spiritual world. Cast out the demons. He has authority there. Two, he has power over the worst, and the worst of diseases. He can do that. He can heal a leper. You say, well, what's the big deal here? He's going to interact with a tax collector. The worst of the worst in the Jewish community. Every one of these situations, now it's a hard heart. The tax collector is the one that, who has despised God, who has turned their back on the Jewish community, all of that. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But, and so he's, he's going to do something now in that man's life to once again demonstrate that no matter who you are, whether you're demon-possessed, whether that you're, 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 you're leprosy, you have this worst disease, or whether you are far from God in your faith and your belief, and if you turn your back, he can bring healing to you. He can return you to him. And so let's just jump in there. And all of these things and I'll just mention this, all of these things also are kind of metaphorically reminding us of sin, right? Um, you're possessed. What did they think? They thought, well, God is, you've sinned, and, and so God is, is just judging you because of your sin. Same thing with, with the leprosy, sin, the tax collector, sin. Jesus is pointing out, he's going to all of these places and reminding people that they are in sin, and he's using these extremes. Now, what they don't realize is that they're all in sin. In fact, many in the Jewish community, the Pharisees, and we'll talk about this a little bit too, they believe they're not sinful. They believe that the Pharisees did not believe they were sinful. That's why it was so appalling when, when John the Baptist was in the Jordan and calling people out to the river to repent. They're like, what? We're Jews. We don't, no, we're good. Like, we have God of Abraham. We don't, we don't need to repent. And so... He was really trying to begin because why did Jesus come? To bring repentance and healing from the penalty of sin. That's the picture here that he's laying the foundation here in this gospel. And I will tell you that we've said in these past few weeks is that the gospel is the most translated book and most published book of all books in the Bible. And because it's been taken to the mission field all around the world. And what is the most important thing if it's going to be taken? The things that it reminds us, no matter who you are, no matter what country you're in, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter how hard your heart is, that there's a person named Jesus who has the power and the authority to bring healing in that situation and to set you free from your sin. And that's the most important thing. And so let's dive into the first verse. 
Mark chapter 2, verse 13. It says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching. So here we don't know chronologically. We know that these guys lowered their paralytic friend down, and he heals him. We don't know if this is like that day. We don't know if it's the next day. If it's a week later, that's not the point. It is chronologically in the sense that sometime after he healed the paralytic, this is what's happening. He went out by the sea again because that was the easiest place to teach. Obviously, we saw that when they were in the house, there was people that couldn't get in. There were people who couldn't get around him. And so many times, Jesus taught by the seashore. Maybe people could sit on the banks all around him. Sometimes he was in a boat. And it says the crowd was coming to him. Obviously, Jesus had quite the following by this point, right? He'd healed all these people. Everybody's wanted to, to hear what he had to say, and so they're, they're gathering and they're coming to him to hear him and what he has to say. We see the same thing um, earlier in the Gospel of Mark uh, in chapter 1, verse 38, about this teaching. You know, he says he was teaching them. We learned a few weeks ago, it says in, in verse 38, it says, And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So what we said was a few weeks ago that Jesus is laying out his, his purpose and his mission for coming. Now you can say, well, Raleigh, the, the most important thing is he came to, to die. Yes. But his first thing, he came to teach. He came to preach. We come to the gospel because we know what salvation is. We know what God done, has done for us. We need to understand it. God has given us a brain and a mind for, for purpose, right? And he begins to teach. The, the, the scripture has been given to us to read, to learn, to know him. And so if God is going to take on flesh and walk among us, right? And he has something to say, and his primary focus is teaching and preaching. Because if you begin to, to look at the gospels, and what is Jesus' primary thing? Is it healing people? No. He heals people so that you will pay attention to what he's teaching. His teaching is the primary thing. And so that leads me to your big idea this morning. If Jesus came to teach, we should listen. Right? Real simple. If God came down from heaven and took on flesh in the person of Jesus, and he did. We can read John chapter 1, right? The gospel of John chapter 1. Took on flesh, walked among us, pitched his tent among us, as it says. Right? If he does that, and he is primarily his role and his responsibility and his mission is to teach and to tell us what God wants us to know. You would think that we would sit up straight and we would listen. Now, there's all sorts of things that, that keep us from wanting to listen. In this culture, um, they had lots of needs. And so they really wanted, they wanted more fish and more bread. They, they wanted to be healed. That was their focus, right? Um, Many of them weren't listening with the intent of saying, okay, how can I be free from sin? I just, I just want to be well. I just want to be physically well. I just want more food. I just, we're needy. We want that. And so there's always obstacles in listening. In our culture today, I would say that one of the big challenges to listen is the pace at which we live. There's the fact that every moment of every day, there's some screen in front of us that's recording everything we do and we're reading and we're just constantly being bombarded with music and videos and social media and TV and all of those things. We just have to fill the space and so we have no time to listen. In fact, I would wager that if we looked at quiet time and, and devotional time and scripture reading for many, even in the church, 
my guess would be that it is not nearly what it used to be because we're so easily distracted. And, and you think if you're the enemy, the, the biggest thing that you can do is help us not to hear what the Lord wants us to know, right? And so if he came to teach, we should listen. All right, verse 14. It says, and he passed by and he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Now, first of all, I want to point out that it says here, uh, Levi. It doesn't say Matthew, right? It doesn't say Matthew. And some people say, well, how do we know? Well, there's other places I'm going to show you here real quick. But many people in that culture had multiple names. And so uh, you think of Simon, right? Simon, Cephas, and Peter. All were Peter. Some of them had more than one Hebrew name. Some of them had a Gentile name as well. So it makes clear sense that here, just because he's calling him Levi at this point, or that Mark is referring to him as Levi, son of Alphaeus, um, he also is going to go by Matthew. And where do we see that? Well, if we go to Matthew's gospel, now here's, this is the actual guy, right? That, that's Levi, the guy that's writing about himself in the gospel of Matthew. He's writing, he says, as Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew. So Matthew here in the Gospel of Matthew is even referring to himself as Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and he followed him. So we clearly can kind of associate that Levi and Matthew are the same person, all right? Same person. But Matthew is a tax collector. Now, the first thing I'll say is, is that the tax collectors um, were the worst of the worst is the way the Jews looked at them. Just to give you an example, so um, in, the, in the Jewish history, much of what they had was, uh, besides the Torah, uh, was the first five books, was what was called oral law. And so oral teaching, everything was oral. They didn't write all that stuff down. But after, because everybody came to the temple and they could teach and they could do that. In 70 AD, after the temple got destroyed, um, it became much harder to have that because there was no gathering place for everybody. And so they began to write things down. Um, some, some things called the Talmud and the, and the Mishnah were things that they were recording things in. And in some of those things, they began to say that the Jews could actually lie to the tax collectors because they were so despicable. They were giving permission to the Jews, some of the rabbis were saying, it's okay, it's not offensive, it's not wrong, it's not sinful to lie to them because they're so offensive. Well, why were tax collectors offensive? What was taking place in that culture? Now, we're not 100% sure here what exactly Matthew was um, collecting taxes for. We have some historical hints, maybe what it be, is. Obviously, Rome uh, was dominant, but not over Galilee, really, directly at this time. And so their presence was there, but it wasn't, they didn't rule like they did over Jerusalem. And so many believe that he wasn't necessarily collecting taxes for Caesar per se, but even the Jewish ruling authority, there's a government, there's Her um, Herod Antipas was kind of over that. He was a Jew that was reigning over Galilee, that area of Galilee, and over Capernaum. And so he obviously wants money too. He's a, a ruler, he wants funds, he wants to be able to fill his coffers as well. And so he hires people to do this to collect money. And so many people believe that what Levi was really doing, or Matthew here, was collecting 
what was really kind of like a custom tax. People, this was a heavy trade route uh, from, from Babylon, what we'd say is Syria today, um, coming down and coming to Jerusalem, and people would transit there with all sorts of goods, and there would be a customs tax when they came through Capernaum. And so these tax collectors were there to put duties on things and to gain money. So why is that a bad thing? Because the way the tax collector made money was, let's say, I'm supposed to collect $10 for every so much goods you have. Well, I collect 12. That's how the tax collector made their money. And so they were scamming or taking more money than they really should so that they could make money. No one was going to, there was no authority to overrule that. Um, Antipas, Herod Antipas, one of those, he got what he wanted. That was fine. Same thing in Rome. If you were tax collecting for the Romans, more of like a federal tax, same situation. You could take more than, than what they wanted, and they didn't care. They got what they needed, and you made your living, right? And so the Jews hated people that did that because they were scamming their own people, and especially a Jew that was doing this. Matthew was a Jew, and he was scamming his own people, and so they, uh, just, they just could not stand him. They could not stand him. And so that's kind of the situation. So what's interesting here, once again, you have someone that has demon possession. You have someone that has leprosy. Those are far out there, right? Jesus now, here in the Gospel of Mark, is looking at someone who is also on the fringe of disobedience. Even in their culture, Matthew is is way out there. His heart is cold towards God. He has rebelled against his own people, against the teachings. He's turned his back on God. They looked at them as traitors, right? And Jesus is coming to that man, just like he had an, a situation with the, the leper and also with the demon-possessed man. See the, excuse me, see the connection. He's going to the far-out regions. Why? Because I believe what Jesus is demonstrating here is that no one is beyond him. No one is out of reach. No one is too far gone, whether it's physically, whether it's spiritually, or whether it's just morally and obedience-wise. So he says, follow me. Now, I had to... Jesus has probably got other people following him at this point. We know he has disciples. We're going to see that in a minute. Can you imagine being another Jew? Jesus is a Jew. He's a rabbi. You, you love him. You love his teaching. You're following him. You think you're a pretty good Jew. And all of a sudden, you come to this tax collector booth, and Jesus tells this guy, hey, come follow and be with me. They weren't even allowed to step a, a foot in a tax collector's house because they could be unclean. Now, this, the text doesn't tell us what they thought, but it'd be a little bit like, like you being friends with, with someone and, and think of the worst person that you would never want to hang around. And the leader of your group goes and says, hey, I want this person. I want you to come and follow and be part of our, our family, be part of our group. Think about what would be in your heart at that moment. So what, what was Jesus teaching them? Just like the leper, they would say, don't touch him. Don't touch him. Like, Jesus, he's gone. He's He's dead. In all these places, Jesus is going way beyond the limits of what they would think is, is right because Jesus is saying, look, I came, I came for everyone. Not, 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 just, not just those who think they're obedient, but I came for everyone. That's the picture here that I think he's, he's painting. And so he says, come and follow me. He rose and he followed him. And I really believe that here in the text, this is exactly what happened. This wasn't, this wasn't Matthew saying, oh, um, some figuratively, metaphorically thing, well, you know, later he followed. No, I really think that that he got out of the tax collector's booth and says, 
I'm, I'm following you. I, I'm, because here in the text, this word follow is an imperative. It means Jesus is saying, you come follow me now, like right now. And I think Matthew does that. And you say, well, why would Matthew do that? Because I think Matthew has known Jesus for a long time. He may have not been best friends with him, but he's heard his teaching. Look, you can't have a guy after a year doing all of these things in Israel, healing all these people, especially in the town you're collecting taxes in, being baptized. You know who John the Baptist is, obviously. I'm sure they know. He may even, just because he wasn't being an obedient Jew doesn't mean he doesn't know what's going on. And he's hearing what Jesus has been teaching. Maybe he's even sat in the crowd as Jesus has been teaching by the sea there. And so it's been working on him. And so when finally this moment that he's confronted face to face with Jesus, and Jesus says, come and follow me, Matthew. He's like, yes, I will leave everything and I will follow you, right? Because Jesus came to teach. Jesus had been teaching Matthew in all of his messages and all his teaching. Matthew was taking it in. Matthew just didn't say one day, oh, here's this rabbi. He told me to come follow him. So I'm gonna leave all of my wealth, all of my great you know, my, my great wealth here, and I'm going to follow this guy that I don't know. No, he, he knows who this guy is. He's, he's heard him preach. He's heard him teach, and it's making sense. God has been transforming Matthew's heart. So when the moment comes when Jesus says, Matthew, come and follow me, he does. He leaves his life of tax collecting, and he walks away from it. This word to follow um, here in the Greek, it, it is not... It is not a, a, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, it is not a lighthearted, um, like a belief system. No, it is risk. It is willing to give your life away. It's saying, I will do this and it's going to cost me something. It doesn't matter because what I'm going to follow, who I'm going to worship and follow is worth it. We see this other places in the New Testament. Later here in the New Testament, when Jesus starts to Get, gain quite a, a big following, which he's already been doing here, you're going to see him in a place where um, all these people are following him. He starts to wonder why they're following him. In other words, he realizes they're not really following him because they, they love him necessarily. They think he's the Messiah. They just want to see him do another cool trick. They want him to see do another miracle. They want more bread. They want more fish. Maybe they have a friend that's ill and they want their friend to be healed. Look, those aren't things aren't wrong in themselves, but they're not really gravitating towards him for who he is and seeing him as the Messiah. And so, and I won't get this quote exactly right, but Jesus one day steps up and says, look, unless you hate your father and mother, yes, even your own children, and pick up your cross and follow after me, you cannot be my disciple. And a bunch of people walked away, says they were sad because they, didn't want to, they, they weren't willing to walk away from their life. They weren't willing to love him the way he wanted to be loved. Now it says, well, does, does Jesus really want us to hate our parents and our children? No, that's not, I think once again, that's not what the scripture is trying to say. What Jesus was trying to say is, look, unless you love me significantly more than your parents and your children, you can't be my disciple. I, I, you, I'm asking you to give away your life and come and follow me. You can't say, well, what about this? And what about this person? Well, I really, no, you have to leave those things. I'm, I'm not always figuratively, not always literally, but you, I have to be the most important thing in your life. And so it involves risk. In fact, some would argue that Matthew leaving the tax collector's business, he was really taking more of a risk than, than Peter and James and John and Andrew and all those guys. Why? Because if they left the fishing business and it didn't work out six months later, they could go back to mom and dad and they'd go back to their fishing business. 
If Matthew didn't work out, first of all, he's leaving to go to a group of people that he doesn't even know that are going to accept him because he's hated among the Jews. Yes, Jesus said, come and follow me, but what about all the other disciples, all these other Jews that he's going to now have to be friends with? Will they, how will they treat me? And if I try and go back to my tax collecting business, that job will be gone. Tax collectors were, were a sought-after position because you could get wealthy. That wasn't just like those jobs didn't grow on trees. If he left that role, there was no going back and saying, hey, can I, can I get my job back, right? So what's the f- first thing we kind of see here in the text is that Jesus tells us to follow him, right? I think this whole picture that we're seeing, there, there's, there's a few just basic foundational principles in these first two chapters that we've covered over six weeks. One is that, that God has the power and authority to bring healing in no matter what situation, right? Over demons, over physical health, over hard hearts. God has that authority. He has the ability to change all of those things. He's reminding us also of all those things are sin, right? They all represent sin, And he's reminding us that we are sinful, that we are sinful. That was hard for the Jews. They did not see themselves as sinful. Not if you were an obedient Jew, you did not see yourself that way. If we go back in, and we go back into Romans, if we look at Romans, but if we go back even into history in the Old Testament, why did God give the law, the Ten Commandments? He gave us the law so that we would see that we're sinful. That was the whole point. Yes, we were supposed to obey the law or they were supposed to obey the law and, and that was going to be good and God honoring. But the major point of why they were given the law was to so that they were sinful. The problem is they didn't see their sinfulness. In fact, what Jesus is doing here is he's showing metaphorically the sinfulness of, of the effects of sin and all of these things and the demon possession and in the, in the leper in this hard-hearted in in this person of Matthew, this tax collector, and he's identifying and showing all of these deep-rooted sinful things, and he's trying to tell us that you're sinful and you cannot save yourself. You need a savior. That was what the, the whole purpose of the law. And because once we realize that we're sinful, then we long for a savior. Until you realize that you're sinful, you don't long for a savior. And I would just ask you this morning, I mean, do you really see yourself as sinful? I was, I was praying yesterday, and, and I think I am, I am more aware of my sin now as a pastor than I've ever been aware of it before in my life. I feel more sinful now in some ways because I'm more aware of it. I'm everything, every every thought, every desire, I'm, I'm putting under the, the grace of God, and I'm realizing that, man, I am sinful. I, yeah, why, do, why does my heart want that? Why do I think that way? Where before, I never even thought about those things. But the more I immerse myself in Scripture, the more I see the grace of God, the more I see that Jesus is kind of holding up a mirror to us and saying, look, you can't save yourself. You, 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 you are the leper, right? Will you come needy to me, or, or will you be self-righteous? And so he tells us to follow him. Verse 15. It says, And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. 
So here what we think is, it seems, uh, and we can see some other scriptures here in, in Matthew, actually Matthew's own gospel, that, that sometime after Matthew leaves his, his tax collecting booth there, and I believe it's probably on the same day, Matthew decides that, hey, Jesus, come to my home. I'm going to invite my friends, and, and I just I want you to come and have a meal with me, right? And so they come, and they're reclining at the table, it says. And here in this culture, and you've seen some things like this, um, in fact, this is many times we see Da Vinci's picture of the Last Supper. It's not like that at all, right? It was probably a low table with people sitting on cushions, reclining towards the table with their feet outstretched, and they were up on their shoulder, and they were eating off of, with one hand off of the table, right? And they're probably sitting around this big table. There was probably other people sitting around them in this house. And so that they reclined at the table in his house. Whose house is this? We believe it's Matthew's. We'll see that in a minute. It says, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining. So as you read scripture, you always want to say, okay, let me create the picture in my head. They're in a home. They're in Matthew's house. And why are they there? Because he's invited Jesus, because Jesus has just asked him, and and he is just incredibly um, transformed by what Jesus asked him to come and follow. And so Matthew just wants to to show people that his relationship with Christ and what's happening here. What else do we see? There's a bunch of people there that are sinners and Tax collectors. I just want to read from two other gospels here to help you see that this is where he's at. Luke chapter 5, verse 29. And Levi, or Matthew, made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. All right, so we see it from the other gospel. Matthew himself in gospel chapter 9, verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. All right, so now even from Matthew's own gospel, we know that three of the gospels, this event has taken place. There are people there, there are other tax collectors there, probably Matthew's um, co-workers, people that were also doing the same job, maybe that were working with him even. It's even possible now that at this function, that says there's other disciples there as well. We don't know. It's possible that James and John and Peter were there. Andrew. Now, you got to imagine they were kind of freaked out, right? They were trying to be, you know, good Jews at some level, and all of a sudden they find themselves following this rabbi who's called them as well, and now they're sitting around with a, a tax collector and his friends eating and fellowshipping. That was that made them ceremonial unclean. It made them morally unclean. It was reprehensible that they would do such a thing. Now, it doesn't say that they were there, but it sure gives every indication because if they were disciples of Jesus, what does it say there in the text in 15? Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So many people that were following Jesus were classified as disciples. We're going to see that they really get distinguished as some of them, the 12, get kind of singled out later and get to be made apostles. Right now, all these people are just disciples, followers of Jesus. We pick it up in verse 16. It says, And the scribes and the Pharisees, or the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're appalled by what's happening here. Now notice it says the scribes of the Pharisees. Depends on what translations you read and how that Greek word's interpreted. 
the, the scribes were people that kind of kept track of things. They wrote everything down. They kind of supported the Pharisees. But they were also the ones that kind of went out and made sure everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were kind of like the, 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 the uh, religious police, so to speak. They went in around. They just made it sure that people were living the way they were supposed to. So for whatever reason, they're here. They're seeing what's going on. They want to know what's happening here with this person named Jesus. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's touching leopards. He's doing all these things. And they are just livid. He's breaking every rule that they would have. And yet it's hard to argue against him because he's setting people free from demon possession. He's healing leopards. He's, he's making people well. How do you argue with that, right? And what's so amazing to me and so profoundly confusing is that they kill him ultimately because he claims to be God and yet he was only doing things that would set them free from all sorts of infirmities and spiritual oppression. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they weren't in the house. They couldn't have been in Matthew's house because they would have been unclean. So they're outside at some level. There's probably lots of people there, just like when he was, the men were lowering the, the, the paralegic down. There was no room in the house, so they're probably outside. They're looking in. You know, there's no, you know, necessarily there's no glass in the windows. They're, they're peering in, right? And, and they're seeing this, and outside are the scribes, and they're talking not to Jesus. They're talking to the disciples of Jesus that are following, and they ask this question. Why does he do this? Why would he do this? It doesn't say what the disciples' answer was. But here we're going to see in a minute that Jesus hears them. And now does he hear them? Or maybe does one of the disciples walk in and say, hey, Jesus, the, the scribes are out here. Man, they are, they are livid right now. They are wondering why you're doing this. In fact, maybe even they're saying, and why are you doing this, Jesus? I mean, why would you be doing this, right? Because you've got to remember, they're, they're also steeped in this way of thinking, And so what does he do? He tells them, you know, why, why wouldn't I come for the sick? That's, that's what I'm here for. That's, that's what I'm doing here, right? And so let's just, let's just jump there. I want to, well, I want to talk to you a little bit about this first. Jesus is talking to all these people. Is there any place in the text that he tells them to repent? No. He's talking to all these sinful people, tax collectors and sinners. And I, I want to I preface something here real quick. It says sinners. Well, isn't everybody a sinner? It's one of the questions that I, when I read this, and we're going to see it here in a minute in verse 17. Isn't everybody a sinner? And yet that word sinner here does not mean what you, you and I would think it means. In the context of what the Jews were saying, is they're saying, okay, if you're a tax collector and you're a sinner, a sinner to them was someone who had rejected God and who was making a mockery of God. Could be a tax collector, but it could be other people as well. People that didn't believe, didn't, didn't believe the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or didn't follow. Because the scribes and the Pharisees did not look at themselves as sinners. So they're saying, these are people that have rejected God that are in there. They are sinners. And so it, he's not... That word does not mean everyone, even though to you and I, we would say, oh, no, we're all sinners. And so Jesus is here talking to them, and he is not apparently, at least in the text, giving them a hard time about their sin. Why not? Isn't that what he came to do, is to beat people into submission? No. No. He's loving them. 
He's loving them. And think, think about this for a second. If you make a new friend, and, and yeah, they don't know Jesus, and you realize they have some sin in their life, is the first time that you hang out with them, you're just going to beat them up the head and say, you know, you're a sinful person, you're horrible. Until you repent, you're going to go to hell. No. That's not how you should be conducting that conversation. Right? You should love them. You should show them Christ's love. Why is that so important? Because when you begin to love them and show them who Jesus is, repentance will follow the change of heart. Right? Now, I'm not saying that we don't confront sin at times. We absolutely must. And there is a time to tell people that they need to repent. And we should not be saying, oh, you can go to heaven without repentance and without being born again if you just are loved by God loves you, so you're okay. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But that's not where you start. And so what's the point here in the text? Jesus loves people before expecting repentance. And we must do the same. We must love people before we ask or before we bring up repentance, we must love them, right? And is there a point that we will bring up that? Yes, once we've kind of shown them who Christ is. I remember many years ago, um, I had a young uh, high school girl. This was many years ago. Um, I was, my office was in a closet right, right where Bill's sitting, uh, in the utility closet. That's where my office was. And I had a young high school girl in there, and she was saying, I have this friend at school who's, um, I think she's gay, and, you know, how do I, how do I, I want to tell her that that's wrong. And, and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, I, I get that. And I said, that, that may have a time and a place, and that's good. I said, but right now, you just want to, sh- you want to share Jesus with her. You want to love her and, and tell her that, that Christ, God has made a way for her to have her sins forgiven. Not that particular sin necessarily, just that, Help her see that she's a sinner in general. You're a sinner, right? We're all sinners. Help her understand that, that she's loved. Because if you just go in and say, well, you know, what you're doing is reprehensible and God hates you, well, that, and God hates you and you're going to go to hell, that's not the way that Jesus handles people. In fact, who did he speak to that way? The religious people. Because they were unloving. Because they were unloving. And so Jesus loves people before expecting repentance, and we must do the same. Verse 17, it says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, the first thing, that first part, this idea of I came for not this, you know, I came not for the the well, but for those that are sick. That's actually kind of a, 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 a proverb that's been used and it's, it's been translated multiple different ways, but that's actually kind of in a proverb type form. He's using that. You can see that in other writings throughout history, not even in that exact verbiage, but, but basically the same principle there. But then he goes on, and this is the perplexing thing that I was very perplexed with and I have been for a long time, and I think I'll, I'll share what I think he's meaning here. But it says, um, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, does anybody have a problem with that statement or have a a question about that? Is anybody righteous? But he said he didn't come to call the righteous, only the others, only sinners. So he seems to be saying there are righteous people and there is no righteous people. So how do you reconcile the text? So, So let's define that there's no righteous people, right? Romans 3, 9 or 10 through 12. As it is written, 
None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Okay, I think we got the point, right? No one is good. None of us in our heart love the Lord the way we should. No one. Everybody has sin. And if that's not good enough, Paul goes on in chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul's making it real clear. Everyone falls short. So... What is Jesus saying when he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners? Well, I'll give you two things that I think that maybe we're seeing here. One, the point of the story, the point of what Jesus is trying to get across is, is that he came for the, for the hurting people. And, and he's not saying, the point that he was trying to make is, I've come for everyone. He's not saying that there is righteous. He's just saying, I didn't come for righteous people. There isn't any righteous people. He's not saying that. He says, I came for the sick. And if you've been following along with saying, well, there's demon possession and, and leprosy and hard-hearted, you know, Matthew here, everybody is sick. So I came for everybody. I didn't come for the righteous because there aren't any righteous. That could be one view. And there may be some truth to that, that maybe that's where he's, why he's speaking this way. There's another view that I think is definitely worth considering is that Jesus was making a bit of a statement to them, almost tongue-in-cheek, and he's saying, you know, I came for the sick, not for the self-righteous. And you're self-righteous. You think you don't need a Savior. Yeah, I didn't come for you. In other words, because I, I, you won't confess me. You won't believe. You don't think you need me, so I didn't come for you. You won't even say that you're sick. So you don't need me. I mean, you do, but you won't confess that you need me. And so there's this, he's this picture of, of Jesus is pointing out their self-righteousness. Because remember, who's he speaking to here? He's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He's saying, I didn't come for you because you're self-righteous. I came from people who know they're sick, who are crying out to me, who the leopard comes and says, I know you can if you're willing, Right? That's this picture. And so that's really, I think, what he's trying to get across to them. I think he's actually being very sarcastic with them, and, and it's really a dig to them. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is Paul now writing to Timothy. We covered this a few months ago. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners whom I am the foremost. So once again, what are we seeing? What was Jesus' purpose for coming? To save sinners. How does he ultimately get us to do that? He teaches us first that we are sinful. Everything he's pointing to is pointing out our sin. He's doing it in all sorts of ways. Whether, like I said, it's the demon possession, it's the, the physical the, 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 you know, the, the things that are going on physical in our bodies that we're decaying because of sin, whether it's because the hard-heartedness of someone like the tax collectors, he's just pointing to our sinful position. And he came into the world to save sinners. That was his mission, that was his purpose, and he starts, and primarily, foundationally, he does by teaching us. And then he says, of whom I am the foremost. I've said this before, does Paul there think that he is the worst sinner of all time? No. That's not, I don't think, what he's saying. 
I think, text doesn't reveal it quite this way. What I think what he's saying is, is I'm the worst because I know my own sin. I know every sin that I have. I would say the same thing. I am the worst of all sinners. And I don't know about you, but I feel that way. Because why? Because I know every sin that I've ever committed. I have a list in my head. I know my selfishness. I know my slothfulness. I know my, my sexual immorality in my life in the past. I know all of it. I don't know yours. <laughs> Some of it <laughs> I may be aware of because maybe you've shared it with me or because your sin has gotten you in trouble and it's became public and so I'm aware. But I have a, a library of my own sin. And so when Paul says, I'm the worst of all sinners, it's because he knows his sin more intimately than anybody else's sin. And I think that's a healthy view. We should understand. It reminds us that we are needy. So what do we see? Let's go, just go ahead and jump to the next step. So what, what do we respond here? In these first couple chapters, we're seeing these things. And here in the text, these five, five verses, Jesus has this encounter and, and calls this man named Matthew, Levi, is a tax collector. And, and what, what do we make of this? What do we decide to do here? Well, I want to encourage you that your next step should be to respond the way Matthew did, right? I'm just going to quickly name five things that I think in the text we can see, and and some of them are are assumed, some of them are just clearly stated, but some of the things I think we can extrapolate. What's the first thing that Matthew did? He listened to the teachings of Jesus. He wouldn't have followed Jesus and left everything that was his, his money, his wealth, if he didn't listen to why he should leave, if he didn't understand what Jesus was saying, he never would have left. So the first thing that we need to do is, is, is even in the church, we need to listen. Once again, what's the big idea? If, if Jesus is teaching, we need to... Wow, you guys are good. If Jesus is teaching, we need to listen, right? That means in service. You need to listen. You need to have your Bibles open. You need to be paying attention. In Bible study, you need to have your own quiet time. You need to be in the Word. You need to be listening to the Word of God in your life. You need to be listening to things. We have podcasts, all sorts of things. There's great teachers out there, wonderful teachers of God. You need to be listening to all those things. You need to be wrestling with them. Not everything you hear is going to be true, right? As I've told you, we have a library out here to read. Just because it's in a book doesn't make it Something that you should say, oh, I believe that. Somebody just, I was so grateful. Somebody sent me something the other day and said, you know, I was reading this book from the library and there's this line in there that talks about God's love is reckless. And if for some of you guys know, a year or so ago, we dealt with this, uh, and I don't think it had this connotation in the book, but God's uh, reckless love is a song that was out there. And, and we said, we're not going to play that. Maybe the, the I'm sure the, the author or the writer, you know, is, is a godly person, but we just like, we don't believe God's love is reckless. And so we're just not going to play that song. It's not that it's a horrible song. It's just everything we do is teaching. Every song we sing is about teaching. And you, we want you to be listening. And if you hear that God's love is reckless, and so this person was just making a note and says, hey, I just want you to know there's a book out in the library that says God's love is reckless. So if you read that book and you come across that, just know that you shouldn't believe that God's love is reckless. It's passionate, it's, it's, uh, it's many things, but it is not reckless, right? It's unending, it's, it's self-sacrificial, but it is not reckless, right? 
So he listened to the teachings of Jesus. Second thing we think, I see that Matthew does here. He recognizes that he was a sinner. He said, well, how do you know that, Pastor Raleigh? He left the business. The business that was making his livelihood. He was giving up everything he had to follow Jesus. Look, it's, it's, it's believers. And, and I just want to be real clear about something. If we want to follow Jesus, it requires letting things go, leaving our old life behind. Think about when Jesus says, um, you know, you got to hate your father and mother, yes, even pick up your cross and follow after me. It, it was, it was, he was clear that this wasn't going to be an easy thing. Following Jesus is not just, as, as one pastor once put it, oh, we just sprinkle a little Jesus on it. You know what I mean? No, that's not what it is. It's life transformation. When he says being born again, that's a radical transformation. If we get a new heart, a heart of flesh versus a heart of stone, that's a radical transformation. If we're a new creation in Christ, that's a radical transformation. We don't come to Christ and stay the same. We come to be Christ and be transformed, to be totally changed, right? Our desires are changed. What we want, what we worship changes. That's what's happening here. He realizes he's a sinner. He's been listening to the teachings of Jesus, and he's seeing and hearing that he's a sinner and he needs a Savior. It's clicking for him. God is working in him, and he's understanding it. And he decides when Jesus is confronting him face-to-face and says, Matthew, I want you to come and follow me. He does it. He lets it all go. And I will tell you, folks, that there is a moment in your life where I believe that Jesus comes to you, and it may be more subtle than you recognize, but he comes to you and says, you have to make a decision to follow me. You have to make a decision. Is this what you want? Is is this life what you want? Or do you want me? Do you trust me? It's not just saying, well, I can think about him and have him and sprinkle a little Jesus on my life and, and I can have my Bible on my shelf and I can, I can do my daily devotion once in a while, but really I'm gonna keep all of my sinful behavior. I'm gonna keep all of the things. I'm still gonna worship myself and, and all these other things in my life. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. And someday I will stand before God and I don't know exactly how this is gonna work, but I think I will be held accountable for what I taught and what I told you. And I never want to hear God say, you did not tell them that believing in me was costly, that they were going to have to die to themselves to follow me. And so he recognized he was a sinner. What's the thing that then generates out of recognition of a sinner? He knew he needed a savior. That's why he followed. He knew this man was going to change his life. This man was, going to, is, was the hope that he needed. The fourth thing, can we know and not follow? Yes. Many people know Jesus and do not follow. Many people sit in church Sunday after Sunday and hear the gospel message and hear that Jesus is saying, come and follow me, and they do not follow. They just keep a close eye on Jesus out there, but they don't, they don't give up anything. They don't want to give up their life. They don't want to put him first. And so what's the point here? And we see it in Matthew. There, had a, there, there was a point that when Jesus came face to face with Matthew and he, he said, Matthew, come and follow me. It was an imperative. Come and do this. Matthew could have said, no. No, I'm not going to. We see that in other places in Scripture. The rich young ruler, Jesus confronts him and he goes away sad because 
he won't do what God is asking him to do, what Jesus is asking him to do. And so every one of us has that opportunity to say, yes, I will follow. Or no, I'm not going to. And so he just confronts him and he says, yes, I choose to follow. I leave. And it's the evidence of it. The transformation is the evidence that we're following. If you come to Jesus and you don't change, I would argue that you probably really haven't been born again. It's just not biblically accurate to say that. And what's the final thing here we see that Levi or Matthew responds? He shares Jesus with others. This guy just left the tax collector's business and he invites all these sinful friends and all these co-workers to come hang out with Jesus. Why? Because he sees the value in who Christ is. He sees that this man loves me even though I have turned my back on God. He's loved me. And I, I'm going to give my life away for this guy because I see that he's my hope. Right? And he wants all his friends to know that. He wants all his friends to come to that same place, that contemplation where am I going to follow, am I going to stay in my old life, or am I going to change my life, and I'm going to give it away, am I going to follow Jesus? I mean, think about that. If, if the Christian church could be rooted in the teachings of Christ, if we could acknowledge that we are sinful, saved by grace, that we need a Savior, and that means we savor Jesus and we would choose to follow, leave the old ways of our life, leave our sinful behavior and do things even though it's, 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 this, it's the every moment thing. And I will just tell you this, following Jesus is not just about a one-time decision. It is in the sense of salvation. But every day, today when you go have lunch and, the, and, the, and they actually give you, you know, if you use cash anymore, which most of us don't, and you got $10 too much in change, are you going to give it back? You say, well... This, this company doesn't need the money. I need the 10 bucks. Obviously, God is blessing me with $10. No, maybe he's just saying, okay, are you going to trust me or are you going to trust yourself, right? I mean, there's all sorts of places where we just trust. A am I going to go home and, and I'm going to profess Christ, but I'm going to go home and I'm going to be on social media and say things and do things that are not Christ-like? Am I going to view images that are not Christ-like? Am I going to lie to my wife? Am I, am I going to hide things in my life? Am I going to continue to want to live the sinless, sinful life and not be transformed? No, I have every moment I have to choose to follow. I have to choose today not to do that, not to do that, or to do that. I need to step into that. And I'm not, I'm not here to burden you with all that stuff. I'm just saying if you love Jesus, you, you will naturally want those things. Yes, we rest in the grace of God because we will not be perfect at that and that we're not trying to, to please God by being good. We please God by making much of him and praising him for what he has done for us. But here then, what happens next? If we could just share Jesus like Matthew shared Jesus. If you all invited your sinful friends, which is any sin you, friend you have is sinful, right? And they listened to the teachings of the gospel, if they realized that we are a sinner and they needed a savior, and they chose to follow him, the church would grow exponentially. There's a lot of problems there. One of us, one of them is that we're not, we're not good students of scripture, so we don't know Jesus as well. We don't realize that we're really as sinful as we think we are, so we don't really know that we need a savior like we do, so we don't savor Christ. And if we don't savor Christ, then really we don't want to choose him because why should I give my life away for something that I'm not really needing to savor that much because I don't think there's much value there. And so then I'm not going to share any, with that with anybody. 
See how it all kind of hinges together? So I would encourage you to make the choices Matthew made. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, as we come to this text, these five simple verses, Father, pray that we will see the purpose of why you had Mark record this. Father, there was a man that had a hard heart, that had abandoned you, had left his faith for the love of the world, for riches and the things that the world could give. But I believe, Lord, that when you began to teach and reveal who you are and to love him in spite of who he was, and then when you came and you made that call upon his life and asked him to follow you, Father, that it was that teaching, it was that reality of his sinfulness and the, the hope of a Savior that transformed his life and he chose to follow Father, I pray that you will work in our hearts that way. Whether it's someone here today that has never placed their hope and trust in you, they've not been born again, that today you would do that in their heart. They would see these things crystal clear. They would desire to continue to study your word and to know you more. Or Father, is that one of us that has been a Christian for many years and we've gotten callous in our walk and our holiness. We think we just can keep living in a sinful life and it doesn't matter and it does matter because we're witnesses for you. We want you to be made much of. We want you to be glorified. We want to have a joy that is unspeakable and Father we find that when we follow even when it costs us. It shows that what we follow and what we worship is meaningful. And you are the most meaningful thing. You are the one that loves us even while we were yet sinners. You're the one that dies in our place. You're the one that takes upon the wrath of the Father so that we could be set free to spend eternity with you in heaven. Father, help us to not under in any way make light of that. Help us to meditate on that truth on a regular basis. Help it to overwhelm us on a regular basis. Forgive us for our complacency. Father, I pray that all that we've done today, our singing, our teaching, our fellowship, has brought you honor and glory. May you continue to draw us closer in our walk with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.